In a recording we made just before Christmas, Sarah Peretta from MAPS and I talked about the challenges the money and pension services faced, where the organisation is now and what the future of financial well-being looks like. We talked about pension-wise, debt commissioning, housing equity, financial engagement. Sarah is a really thoughtful and engaging individual. It's always a pleasure to talk to her. I hope you enjoy this episode. No, no, just don't make plans, Tom, yeah. like, ever again. Um, yeah. yeah. So you were at Maz before Maz became Maps, weren't you? Yes, briefly, nine months. Ago. So I was just really struck thinking back. So, so you know, I, I did the review of Maps earlier this year, yeah. and I'm still struck thinking back now at the challenges that you guys all faced of merging those three agencies, MAS, where you worked, plus TPAS, plus PensionWise, and then, you know, COVID striking quite soon afterwards and the exec turnover that happened. And, you know, I, mean, I made the argument in my review and I stand by it now. You know, that combination of challenges just must have been really difficult to work through. What's your sense of where MAPS is at now as an organisation in terms of how it's moved on from there and in terms of its progress towards its goals? So I think, you know, all of the things you've just said, I I 100% recognise. And I think the design of the organisation itself, it's quite a complex organisation, really, with, you know, multiple functions. There's a commissioning element, there's a direct delivery element, there's a strategic element. Each of those on their own for an individual organisation would still be quite a big job. So I think, you know, integrating and working out what's the right balance between the strategic functions Mm. and how MAP should focus its efforts, energies, resources, etc., has been a journey, definitely. I think coming out of the departmental review, there's a feeling of endorsement's not quite the right word, but I think this feeling of, okay, now we move forward. You know, mm. we've we've had this kind of forensic look, obviously, that you did in terms of looking at the organization. Is it fit for purpose? Was it designed right ultimately? Should it continue as is? You know, with some tweaks, I think the general recommendation was keep going. <laughs> um, and then in terms of that sort of leadership challenge that you talked about, we've been in a relatively steady state now for yeah. a little while with a, the same leadership team mm. and, and the board. And so I think, again, that's creating that stability. And then, you know, not a week goes by where a brick in the wall isn't put into place for the organisation. So it might be you know, really tightening up our approach to public sector equality duty, which as a public sector organisation, we have to pay due regard to. So we've done work on that, obviously, but it's, you know, honing that, getting a strategy in front of the board, making sure everyone's agreed on that. And then the next week, it'll be looking at, you know, employee benefits or a policy. And those are bricks in the wall that an organisation has to just keep chipping away at and that wall is getting higher and higher and stronger is the way I would put it. And so the to-do list of things that, you know, the integrated organisation of MAPS needs to do in order to be, you know, all singing, all dancing. To allow um, the machine to work yeah, quite smoothly. Ex- yeah. Exactly, yeah. And to do our job really well, actually. That wall is being built and, you know, my team are quite involved in, in lots of elements of that. So just different component bits of strategy and policy that kind of help support that. So I think there is this feeling of, you know, it was a bumpy start it's a complex organization for such a small you know it's a smallish organization but it has you know a lot of different things going on you know I think it was for all three organizations an adjustment to really understanding what is an arm's length body Mm. how should an arm's length body interact with its stakeholders obviously it's major stakeholders like government but also financial services and other organizations that needed time to bed in because not as, as you will know not all arm's length bodies are created equal so there's no blueprint for 
this is how an arm's length body should be and should interact. There are broad kind of rules and templates, but each organisation needs to to find its feet on that, working with those stakeholders. So I think that, you know, that's been a journey as well. And it feels like there's, you know, lots and lots of work has been done on really, really refining how that's going to work. I was interested and impressed the way, you know, you talk about stakeholders and I'm thinking particularly about the DWP here and the way you and they kind of sat down across the table and said, okay, how do we make this work? You know, how do we sort of work out a decent ways of working so that, so that we get the best out of each other? And you kind of went through that process to, to make sure that, that it did work as efficiently as possible. I'm also really interested in, uh, and you touched on this, MAPS's relationship with the external stakeholders. Think about, think about you know, the audience for this podcast, the financial services sector, which again, I was thinking about maps kind of, there's big different components here because you've got the banking and the finance sector and that sort of bridges across to some of the debt advice stuff. And then you've got the wealth management sector and then sitting quite close to that, you've got the whole pension sector and, and how that relates to pension-wise advice. So there's there's a spectrum of external stakeholders, but just what are your thoughts around where maps is at across that element of the stakeholder map? Yeah. So I think stakeholders won't have gone through the Financial Guidance and Claims Act with a fine tooth comb, I fairly appreciate, but... Um, oh, some have. I've spoken some, to some who some have. have. Some no, care, really sure, care about it. I'm yeah. sure somehow we could do a, a mastermind quiz on who has and who hasn't. But part of the Act does specifically say that MAPS's strategic function is to develop and coordinate a national strategy. Yeah. And in order to do that, it must work with others. And it specifically mentions financial services and the devolved authorities, which is, I, as yeah. you were listing stakeholders, I was thinking that is that is another big element yeah. to this, is actually ensuring that everything we do, we're working in partnership with the devolved authorities. And it mentions public and voluntary sectors. So I think, you know, it's never far from my mind that this is part of our statutory duty to do that well, to interact with those stakeholders. The intention was never that MAPS goes off on its own, you know, delivers its services, writes a strategy and does that on its own. Well, that was never going to work, was it? No, and it's written in law that we should be working with with those other stakeholders. So I think, you know, you mentioned so many different areas, debt, pensions, etc. We work with all of those stakeholders all of the time on different projects and in different capacity. And obviously the UK strategy was where we really threw open the doors really early early on in MAP's life, actually, to go, OK, well, we're going to write this UK strategy. There was a financial capability strategy that MAS had set up before that, but we didn't want to assume and take all of that learning and just say, well, we've already done it. We went right out to consultation and went and met with organisations all across the UK to say, OK, what are the biggest drivers of financial wellbeing in the UK? What does financial wellbeing even mean to mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. And where should MAPS prioritise its resources in order to approach this for the UK and by the way this is us laying out a strategy but it's your strategy it's not our strategy so I think we we went through that period of engagement which was really positive and we had huge engagement from large and small organizations in all four corners of the UK and then we ran a challenge so we published our strategy in January 2020 and then opened up to and invited you know lots of really good thinkers and deep experts from across the UK to say, okay, we've published these five national goals for the UK strategy across financial education, savings, credit, debt, and pensions guidance. How do we achieve those national goals? And we got loads of input from those stakeholders of what we should put into action in order to do that. And we're right on the cusp now of publishing our delivery plan, which will lay out, you know, what we think the, the roadmap will be to achieving those national goals. So I see this as a period where, and I'm talking to my team about this at the moment, where we will go back out and re-engage some of those stakeholders, but not in a, 
you know, what do you think about savings and credit? In a very focused and specific kind of task-based approach of saying, okay, well, this is one of the initiatives that the sector said would work. So let's kind of organise around delivering that. So that's the sort of strategic piece. And then obviously we commission services. So we work with the debt advice sector and financial services specifically around that commissioning and delivery of services. And in the pensions guidance space, we are always in the room talking about kind of policy changes or policy developments that government are considering, whether or not we are going to be the service delivery partner for those. And so things like midlife MOT, you know, we're a, we're a key voice in that process of understanding how to develop and, and what the design of a midlife MOT might look like. So there is no kind of corner of the business where we're not speaking to or heavily involved with regulators, financial services. And then obviously, as I mentioned, we have a country manager for Scotland, mm. Wales and Northern Ireland. And they're, you know, really in the weeds with devolved administration policy and making sure that we can embed financial well-being into that as well. That, that's really good. And I want to come back on that financial well-being strategy piece and the, the going back out to the world that you just mentioned there, which is really good to hear because I saw some of the work you did early on when you were developing the strategy and the challenge groups you put together and all the input you got from that. And, and there was a slight sense after that of we did all this engagement, what happens next? And so I think a lot of people will be really encouraged to hear that you are now about to go back out to the world. Can you give me any sense of when that's likely to happen? <laughs> that's the million dollar question. So the delivery plans have been written. Each of the devolved administrations have signed off their plans. They are just going through the final, it's not sign off, but final kind of eyes over within government. But we're hoping kind of very, very early next year, we're going to be able to publish those. That would be really exciting. I yeah. think a lot of people will welcome that because... Yeah. The thing yeah. to add, Tom, as well as what, about that is, is obviously we know what's in those delivery plans and where some of those activities are led by maps we've been they, they were written into our business plan for this year anyway hmm. so there's been a you know, there has been progress made on some of those things so when we're publishing it won't be a you know starting gun fired off we go quite a lot of those things a midlife MIT that I mentioned is a good example as well yeah. because that's specifically mentioned in the delivery plans and work is already well underway thinking about that so yeah for some stakeholders as you say some stakeholders maybe and I've had conversations as you have as well from people saying, oh, I haven't, I haven't heard much lately. What's happening next? That will be where initiatives are kind of yet to kick off. But there will be other stakeholders that, you know, that are heavily involved in some of the things I've talked about there and financial services organisations that are working on financial education, for example. Mm. We've carried on running. We, we didn't stop at the end of the challenge group process. Actually, we carried that steering group on and that's been meeting regularly ever since then. So, so there are some stakeholders that won't, won't have noticed that silence and others, as you say, that have. On the, um, the debt advice commissioning, the debt advice delivery work, two things that struck me about that. One was I sensed there was concern in some quarters about whether you were, you were delivering on your, you know, your remit, on your obligations in that regard. That was a question that was put to me early last year, and I think, I think we've moved on a bit from there now. But that question did exist. You know, is MAPS delivering on the debt advice stuff? But I was also struck when I started looking at it, you know, that's expensive and that's complicated and that's quite a challenging bit of what MAPS does. And it's a really big bit of your budget as well, isn't it? So do you feel like you're in a good place on the, on the debt advice stuff going forwards in terms of perhaps in terms of cost control, in terms of the delivery and in terms of kind of meeting the demand there? So we're, in, we're still in the midst of the commissioning exercise. So I can't obviously speak about that because it's commercially sensitive. But one of MAP's main focuses, as you said, just because of the size of the budget and the importance of the issue is debt advice. So it's something that MAP's in terms of executive energy and board energy spends a huge amount mm. of time thinking about. And I would say as well, 
that we've been in a kind of complete state of flux and all of the debt organisations will have experienced this as well through COVID. So COVID Mm. has kind of pushed debt advice in really different and unusual directions because in some places it's pressed pause on debt advice. So people that might have been about to seek debt advice They've been able to use the forbearance measures. They might have been furloughed. Um, Some people obviously have been, you know, their spending possibilities have been suppressed, so they've been saving. And so kind of all across the landscape, people have been pushed into different situations that they might have been if COVID hadn't come along. And one of our big focuses is now thinking through when that debt advice demand is going to start to crystallise and then peak and forecasting that the whole sector is struggling with that because obviously you know this new omicron wave has added yet another lens to that so you know 2 months ago we were modeling what we thought 2022 would look like and omicron is day by day changing the face of that so i think that's a big factor at the moment in debt advice is who needs debt advice and when are they going to need it because that pause button yeah. has been pressed in so many households in, in some cases it means the issue might have gone away because people will have been able to save and kind of recoup and recover. But in many cases, it's it's hidden away from us and it's just a case of it it will come back, but we need to model when. And as you say, it's really hard to plan, go back to 2020, and there was an anticipation that because of COVID, there was going to be a surge in demand for debt advice. And then the government came along and threw huge amounts of money at furlough and, and that debt advice demand kind of didn't materialise. Yeah, exactly. I know a lot of people in the industry are really kind of focused on pension-wise and how that integrates into the the overall system. You know, we've got the stronger nudge coming now. I mean, it's clear that for the people that use pension-wise, it's really good. You know, the the approval ratings, the feedback numbers are really, really good. Pretty much everybody that goes through pension-wise says they're glad they did it. The challenge still is, you know, how do we get more people to do it? I appreciate some of this is a policy question. Some of this is now a regulatory question. Are you able to talk about that at all and how you see that might develop going forwards? Anyone listening to this in the sector that works on pensions will know that engaging people to actually, A, listen and engage with their pensions and B, sort of take action is incredibly hard. So I remember really early doors in this job, actually having a conversation about with Behavioural Insights team about Mm kind of in behavioural trials, what success looks like in different areas. And in pen- the pensions area, you know, a 1% uplift is seen as a huge success. And that just kind of shows the size of the challenge really is, is getting people to really engage with this is really hard work. And, you know, lots of very, very clever people right now are working very hard on how to do that. But, you know, one of our national goals, our, f- our fifth national goal, is people knowing enough to plan for and in retirement. So our focus is very much on an acceptance that people do need guidance and that as you say when they when they get that guidance they benefit from it and they see the value of it as well and it's a hugely reassuring process for people when they go through pensions guidance there's a whole range of things we're working on to try and improve that engagement the dashboard obviously being mm. um, one stronger nudge another midlife mot there are you know other policy topics under discussion such as statement season so you know the government is looking all the time with how to increase engagement with pensions guidance and we're in those conversations and sometimes as I mentioned we'll end up being involved in the delivery of that and other times not but yeah it's one of our five national goals for a reason and and a huge focus for the organisation and one of the things we're looking at as well more generally is we've obviously launched Money Helper and Money Helper is integrating our guidance services pension wise obviously remained as a a separate brand but one of the reasons for integrating Money Helper is recognising that people's their need for money, debt and pensions guidance or advice 
is all intertwined and people, you know, you'll, if you talk to our pensions guiders, they will tell stories about people wanting to access their pension, maybe to help with a family member's debt problems or their own debt issues. And actually, when you start talking to somebody and kind of unpick what they really need guidance for, it's not always the thing they're presenting with. So I think that's a key thing for us as well is how do you make sure that we're kind of getting people that fully holistic guidance that enables them to make the right decisions and maybe sometimes that's taking them slightly outside of the pension space temporarily in order to make the right decision for their pension. That tees up nicely something I wanted to ask you about because I've been looking a bit at housing wealth and equity release, housing equity generally and how people can use that and I was struck by the fact that you know if you if you look across the deciles of population wealth particularly when you look at the older ages, you know, for the bottom couple of deciles, effectively, it's always going to be an element of there's just not enough money there. And there's not enough pension savings. There's not enough housing wealth. There's not enough other savings. And so it's always going to be a struggle to meet their retirement income needs. And then at the other end, you've got the top two or three deciles where these are the people typically who would talk to a financial advisor and who've probably got enough investment wealth to see them through retirement and they may or may not need to look at their property wealth as part of their retirement income needs and their care needs. But there's that middle chunk of maybe the middle five deciles of the population. In many cases, their property wealth actually exceeds their pension savings wealth and for whom that property wealth is going to be a really key element of how they meet their income needs in retirement. And I get a sense that there's a disconnect there, that a lot of the time that doesn't really get woven into how people plan their, their savings. You know, a lot of advisors don't advise on it, it doesn't come up in the pension-wise discussions. And you talked about things like the midlife MOT and, you know, a more holistic approach. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts around that and how we could try and bridge some of those gaps around the property wealth. Yeah, interesting one. So, I mean, it undoubtedly will come out up in... Um sort of general pension services. But I think this is one of those things where we're talking really about kind of cultural understanding of wealth, aren't we, in the UK? And, and in the UK, I think we sometimes see our property as untouchable or something that we mm-hmm. hand down and not necessarily something that we should use as a source of income in retirement. And things change really quickly. We're obviously looking at a generation at the moment that have that property wealth, but looking far down the tracks, you're looking at a generation kind of coming up that probably won't have that property wealth. And I think we do, and my policy team do take that long-term view of what we need to design now in terms of pension services is going to have to constantly be in flux as, you know, new generations come through that have a different model and different sources of income. I do so many interviews and we do so much work on the sort of culture and behaviours around money. And so much of that is kind of cultural and emotional. And I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head that that property wealth is often not seen as part of the picture. But I think it feels like there's a blind spot there, yeah. Potentially, yeah. And that will be at the emotional, non-rational end of how we interact with money. You know, we we do so much work on this from everything from, you know, parents talking or not talking in many cases to their children about money, right through to what you're saying here, which is people thinking about property as a source of wealth. And you know, the other the other thing that, that comes through is also how women and men of the generation that are retiring now might view their pensions. So, you know, I've heard our pensions guiders talk about how women who will have quite a small pot sometimes won't see that as retirement income because it's not substantial enough to be seen that way. So they might they might see that as money that they could give to their children to get married or to help them with a, a money issue, as I mentioned previously. Mm. Again, that's the kind of emotional and cultural factor that's leading women who haven't accru- or who don't see themselves as independent financially 
won't see their pension pot as theirs and for them. And I've spoken on various panels about kind of women and gender and pensions as well. So I think all of that stuff is really fascinating because when you're trying to change that behaviour, you're tapping into something much bigger than that guidance. You're tapping into (laughs) the way the nation feels about money and the way the nation feels about property. You know, we we are a nation that is, it's kind of recognised as obsessed with property and owning property. And that isn't the case, you know, across Europe. There are it's more common just yes. to accept that you'll be renting for your whole life, and that and their kind of whole income model for their whole life is on the basis that they will be renting. And in the UK, we don't see it that way. So yeah, really, really interesting topic. And I think one that you're kind of hitting the nail on the head will have to become part of the conversation as people's retirement income gets pinched further. Yeah, and I think as you look at the cohorts, you know, for maybe the next ten years. You know, the DB provision that's already built up in the system, the defined benefit pensions will will meet a lot of people's needs. Beyond that, they won't. And, you know, there's going to be a pretty steep drop off with people increasingly coming to retirement with only defined contribution pension wealth and increasingly not enough of it. And as you go beyond that and you start getting down to the millennials and, 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 and the younger generations, you know, it, it's kind of hard to predict exactly where they're going to be. But for them, property wealth I think will be a different picture. So I guess for me, it's starting to become an issue now and will become much more so over the next 10 to 20 years as, as the pension wealth diminishes. But you're still getting people perhaps in their 50s today who are moving into retirement who who, ha- who in the main do have some some property wealth and that, that cultural attitude and all things going to have to, to shift as people recognise that, yeah, I do have this asset and I might have liked to have left it to my children, but that's not really an option. Yeah, for sure. Interesting stuff. So I was quite intrigued that you, some of the work you do in slightly unexpected places. You mentioned, so so when we talked before about financial well-being delivered in people's health journeys and how you're working with the NHS, and I know you do a lot of work with, with employers. I'd be really interested to hear you talk a bit more again about that and how MAPS is engaging with perhaps slightly unexpected stakeholder partners to deliver financial solutions to people and to help them with their financial well-being? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a really interesting area and it goes back to that point that I was mentioning earlier about how difficult it is in, is to engage people. Well, we were talking in the context of pensions, but it's, it's difficult to engage people with topics around money as well. So, yeah, one of the pieces of work we've been doing is when we developed the UK strategy, I took to the board a presentation which was saying, OK, imagine financial well-being as a health issue. And if you use public health modelling to look at it that way, so you you would there's a kind of traditional pyramid that you sort of triangle that you use in um, health modelling, which shows it enables you to look at the balance between prevention versus remediation. And at the bottom of the pyramid in health modelling, you might be spending money on you know if it's smoking, awareness around you know the problems with smoking and labelling on packages and all that kind of stuff. So that kind of really investing in prevention. And at the top of the pyramid, obviously, you're treating people who have diseases related to smoking, for example. And if you look at financial well-being in the same way, obviously, the top of the pyramid for us is is debt advice or in the pensions case, kind of pension scams and crisis interventions. And then at the bottom of the pyramid, my view and what I took to the board was there is big untapped market there where we're not going and reaching into the places where people are making decisions about money or being forced to make decisions about money because of other factors. And so sort of two main avenues we're exploring. Well, there are others, but two kind of really big avenues. One is health and saying, okay, well, there's a mutual interest here. So we know that if people are experiencing health issues or mental health issues, if they have money issues, that is likely to hamper their recovery. 
And so can we make sure that when health professionals are having conversations about people's lives and the decisions they're making, that money is part of that and it's it's an, kind of opened up as a conversation as part of that. And by the way, when you have those conversations with health professionals, you are pushing on an open door. They know that money is a factor and it's a problem for some of their clients. But what we were seeing is that they don't always feel confident of when and how to open up that conversation and where to refer people to get the help they need. So if you've got a kind of a huge army of people, really, if you look at the NHS, Mm. that know this is an issue for their clients and, you know, lack of awareness, lack of knowledge, lack of resources is what's holding them back. That's quite a good in, isn't it, to say, okay, well, we can provide you with, you know, a set of questions that you can ask your clients, some referral pathways into guidance and debt advice, and just generally raising awareness about the importance of having this conversation and the benefits of doing so. So that's the kind of work that we're doing at the moment. And we're working with the National Association for Social Prescribing. Now, that organisation is growing a programme that says, okay, you've got someone here who might come into a surgery and say they're experiencing anxiety. So can that doctor prescribe them? Maybe they don't have a good social network around them. Maybe they're not getting the benefits they need because they're digitally excluded. Maybe they've got money worries. So the idea with social prescribing is that that health professional will then prescribe various activities or interventions or referrals that will help that person deal with the health problem they're presenting with. So what we're doing with National Association for Social Prescribing is trying to make sure that financial well-being, money, referral into debt, advice and and money and pensions guidance is part of that journey. So that's one thing we're doing. And then we're also working with mental health services in quite a similar way to then ensure that money referrals are built into that journey. And this is, you know, someone listening from financial services, this is not something that financial services aren't engaging with. I think it's beneficial for everyone in the UK. But, you know, I, I came to MAPS from Lloyds Banking Group and we were working with Macmillan, we were working with all the main mental health charities to do this kind of stuff within the kind of financial services ecosystem and making sure that we identified those customers that needed that support in terms of, you know, a cancer diagnosis or mental health diagnosis. And then in reverse, those organisations were identifying people that might need additional support from their bank or some kind of more specific and bespoke guidance. So this is a really, I think, a really strong area and a way to make sure that you're kind of catching people at the point where they've got these difficult decisions to make and then you can help with their health journey and their financial well-being journey at the same time. And when we know that in terms of financial education, delivering helpful messages at the salient moment, at the moment when people yeah. are actually confronted, well, that's how messages land, isn't it? Rather than being just like abstract financial education in schools where you know, people go, oh, that's really interesting and then they forget. Yeah, it. I mean, that, that stuff's important too, but yeah. you know, it's evidence that you know, getting people the guidance in a moment of crisis or at a point of decision-making around a life event is really important. And then on that kind of point around life events, the other channel that I mentioned was employers. So mm. People make lots of financial decisions at work, don't they? And lots of big life events happen to them at work, which have financial implications. And the example I always give is, you know, you're in work, you've just got pregnant with your first baby, and suddenly you're having to kind of look at what your financial situation is going to be for the next nine to 12 months, or maybe a bit longer in some cases. So you've got a decision point there. And an employer can provide you with, 
you know, any level of guidance really to help you understand the implications of that, of what your financial situation would look like. And by the way, many don't provide much on that. I mean, obviously there is guidance available and we're, we're one of the providers of that guidance, but there, there would be and could be a role for an employer to be more involved at that stage. And then the other one that I think is when people are reducing hours, either, you know, commonly returning after they've had a baby or people tapering later on in their career or people maybe who've been ill and can no longer work full-time or don't want to work full-time. The thing that I think is missing there as well is understanding when you're making that decision, it's not just about money in, money out today. It's understanding that it's money in, money out, you know, 20, 30 years down the track as well in terms of your pension. And I don't think people, certainly they're not guided to really think about that at that moment, that, you know, if you reduce down to three days a week now and you do that for 10, 15 years, what impact will that have on your retirement so there's conversations like that, which I think is untapped. And we're seeing more employers, particularly large employers, recognising and investing in financial wellbeing programmes or introducing sort of savings vehicles into the benefits packages or the kind of wider package they offer colleagues. But there is a lot more that can be done. And, and particularly where, you know, for SMEs where they don't have a huge HR department and they can't, you know, bring in an HR consultancy to design a programme for them. I think that's where maps can step in and provide, you know, white level content and referrals and information and guidance. And, and we already do a lot, a lot of that already for smaller employers as well. Think, thinking back to the auto-enrolment days where, you know, you had a huge chunk of the workforce covered by just a handful of the really big employers. And then you get this, you know, long, long tail. And there's something in excess of a million employers in the UK from memory. And 1.2, 1.3, I think, is that kind of territory in terms of numbers of employers in the UK. And a lot of them are only employing a handful of people. So that must be a challenge for MAPS. You know, you can easily engage with, you know, you mentioned Lloyds Bank where you used to work. You know, it's easy for MAPS to engage with Lloyds Bank. If you're talking about an employer that's only got three employees, it, it get, must get increasingly difficult for you to try and deliver that kind of resource into such small employers. Yeah, for sure. But I think we, we do work with organisations that represent those smaller employers as well. And I think something I'm interested in doing next year, actually, and I've been talking to my team about this, is pulling out best practice around financial well-being and, and giving and really getting those case studies out there of where people are doing this well. And I've had quite a few conversations with senior leaders recently in large organisations and Whitbread being a good example we met with Alison Britton there. And she was talking about things that they do like hardship grants for people that are struggling, you know, maybe the car's broken down or the fridge or whatever. And then also enabling people to have meals at work. And that's a big programme they do. And to me, those are financial, that's a financial well-being programme. That's kind of thinking about your colleagues as individuals who are often on, these are large employers of people on you know, minimum wage. How can we as an organisation make sure they're fed, can get to work, have a fridge, you know, have got that kind of support around them to enable them to do their job well? And we were really impressed with what she was doing, but she didn't necessarily recognise that as a financial wellbeing programme. And I bet you would find the same with many small employers where they're enabling that flexibility with their employees around pay and time off and looking after family and coping with money issues and a whole plethora of other things. So I think what I would like to do is have more examples of how large and small organisations are just doing this as part of what they do. And I was struck when we spoke to Alison about this of saying, well, you know, what you're doing is fantastic. And I think quite a kind of really holistic and brilliant way of looking at it. 
and I was talking to her about the business case for it. And I did, I meant in in the kind of soft touch way, hmm. but she said, well, we, we don't have a business case for it. We're doing it because it just makes sense and it's the right thing to do. Nice. And yeah, and I think that there are many organisations that will be doing that. They won't recognise it as financial wellbeing, but that is exactly what they're doing. Yeah. And I think bringing those case studies out will be really helpful for organisations, like you say, that maybe can't quite envisage what is this and what difference is it going to make and why is it important? And you don't have to spend long with an organisation you know, that isn't doing stuff to convince them that actually this is worth doing and, and they will see benefits as well. I was struck by one of the stats in the maps. I can't remember which paper it was. Corporate strategy paper, maybe. I can't remember. 11.5 million people have less than £100 in savings and investments. And, and if, you know, if your employer can help you just build up a very modest financial reserve that then gives you a little bit of flexibility in your life that means when a crisis moment strikes, you don't have to take the day off work or you don't have to. It, it's not only good for you as an individual, it's potentially good for your employer as well. You know, There, there is a business case to be made for, for there, giving there people more financial resilience. Yeah, there is. And also, you know, we've, we, we've got lots of pieces of the jigsaw on this. So we've got the link between money and mental health. We've got loss in productivity. So if people are having to deal with kind of crisis around money, they are going to be less productive. They're going to be having to make phone calls during the day, mm. take time mm. off, et cetera, et cetera. And they're so just many... distracted. I mean, they just don't work as effectively. Yeah, it, it's incredibly stressful. Stress, yeah, stressed yeah. and anxious people who are distracted and thinking about major issues yeah. that are impacting their lives are going to be less productive. So yeah, we've got lots of, the business case is there. It's lots of pieces of the jigsaw. So I think it, it is really compelling. And I mean, again, though, that, that engagement challenge comes back. So we're running and having for a while something called sidecar savings yes. with a number of employers, which is about people um, saving into a liquid savings buffer as part of saving into their pension. And we're moving into trialling that as an opt out because obviously up until now it's been an opt in. And we also have a separately have done some work with Leeds Credit Union on employee savings. Now, convincing people that they should save more and that that, that vehicle would help them save more is not that difficult. So people will see the benefit, like it, get that it's important. Getting people to do it is still really tricky. And, you know, as we've seen with pensions auto-enrollment, opt-out models yes. do work. They really yeah, yeah, do yeah. work. And I think the same is true of savings. And in the credit but you start bumping sector, up against some legal barriers there, don't you? So. Yeah, you do. But I think there's an openness to explore that. And it's, you know, okay. it would, we're, it's in the FCA sandbox to do the, the sort of opt-out model. That's you know, as, you, as you've said... Well, I think COVID has kind of, everyone knew that nobody, not many people had a savings puffer, but COVID has sort of illustrated how many people were in quite precarious situations and maybe people that And also what managing. a good idea it is to have one. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. So you're pushing on an open door, convincing you know, leaders that this is a good thing. You're pushing on an open door, actually convincing individuals that saving more and having a savings buffer is a good thing. But the, the mechanism for actually helping that to happen is still challenging. There's some research, it's a couple of years old now, but it looked at, in credit unions, some of them offer the, the model where you can only borrow if you're a regular saver with that credit right. union. So kind of repay and save model. And then while you're repaying your loan, you will be also accruing a savings pot. And there's some brilliant research that shows that you can, you're essentially kind of forcing people into being savers because that's the only way they can borrow. But the conversion rate then of people who, once they've built that savings habit, actually will carry on saving is really high. So it's really, it's really successful in terms of getting people to save. So I think that's another example where it's not, it's sort of an opt-out model, isn't it, in a, in a different way. So where can we find ways to replicate and, and get people into that savings habit? Because we're not forcing them to do something that's bad for them. And there's no, you know, there's nothing kind of 
sinister about getting people to save. It, it, it is a good thing and it makes people feel good and it reduces their stress and it helps them out when things go wrong. There's nothing not to be said for it, really. Nice. It's, uh, every time I talk to you, I'm just struck by the fact that you, you, you've got one of the coolest jobs in financial services. <laughs> just all this stuff that you're doing to, you know, both at a big picture and, and a kind of a micro level, just to, to make people's lives better and to help improve the, the, the financial well-being of the country and the landscape generally. I'm struck, again, talking to you now about like how much to do there is and, and you know you're clearly going to be really busy going into 2022 and beyond sure. <laughs> but yeah I tend, I tend to agree with you Tom I have got a really fascinating job way beside anyone that asks me in a pub what I do because they'll get kind of 45 <laughs> minutes of money chat and then I've got two young kids and that's the other thing I would say is that I got into this before I had two young kids I've been working on financial inclusion and financial education for for longer than I've had them. But having two malleable, five, well, they're five and seven now, and sort of applying, knowing what I do about this sort of research about how to engage children and young people around money and, you know, the fact that you should start, that they, they form a savings habit by seven and that you can literally start at two and three, which I did with my kids. And then watching that happen in real life, you know, informed by the evidence and, and um, just each year and kind of each month, really, seeing my kids grow and that is really fascinating as well. There's going to be this um, moment I, later on when you're going to have to explain to them they've been a research experiment yeah. with sub- subjects. You know, <laughs> I, think, I think they kids. already know. They already know. <laughs> uh, the funniest one that I've experienced lately is, obviously, I, I know from evidence that it's good to talk to your children about money and involve yes. them in household conversations around money. But I've kind of realised I've created a monster a little bit because my kids have shall we say, a probably culturally American approach to talking about money now, where they will ask me or anyone else, how much does that cost? How much do you earn? How long would you have to That's work quite to buy that thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. It is forward, but it's the side effect of doing the right thing, which is talking to them a lot about money and how much things cost. Because my seven-year-old has now quite a good sense of how much lots of different things cost. And he knows, you know, how much minimum wage is. And I mm. say to things to him like, you know, this round, of, you know, we went to a cafe over half term and the bill came to £20 for, you know, cups of tea and cake and things. And I explained to him that if you worked in this cafe, you'd probably be earning, well, the announcement had just come in about the change in minimum wage, around £10 just to make it easy maths. So how long would you have to work to earn the money to have this tea and cake? And just things like that, kind of those relative values of money. And, you know, you talked about this being the most interesting job. The big challenge for me is that we've been talking about those micro-interventions but actually, what we're looking at to really make this happen is quite a big cultural change where actually loads of kids do have those conversations with their parents about money so that in 30, 40 years time, it isn't money isn't tinged with kind of shame and something you have to hide. And, you know, if you're having issues, you don't engage with them and you're kind of really embarrassed and anxious about them. We, we have to change all of that stuff. And, and that's part of our job as well at MAPS is to really look at that. Well, how do you create that societal change around money and looking at the kind of behavioural insights that will enable us to do that? That's really interesting. You know, we're talking about societal change and we talked a bit earlier about, you know, property wealth and societal change and attitudes mm, there. Mm. Look at how people's attitudes to mental health have changed in the last few years and how all of a sudden, you know, it's OK to talk about this kind of stuff. It's a thing and you can share it with your friends, with your family. And that's changed so quickly. So, you know, these things can change. And it's really good to know you're going to be part of making this change. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I draw the parallel with money, with mental health a lot, because there are so many. If you, if you look at the journey of mental well-being and you track financial well-being and say, OK, all of these things happen to change that debate. Senior leaders talking about it, yeah. employers investing in it, 
you know, government thinking about it and investing in it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If all of those same things happen in financial well-being, then you're right, we could see change at scale in a relatively short amount of time. Just get Prince Harry on the job as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah many other famous people, actually, and business leaders and things. That's what we need. Sarah, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you spending the time. Thank you, Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.